Take your Bible and join me in Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4. We covered the first three chapters basically a couple of weeks ago. And now we move into chapter 4, which is going to be hopefully understanding that it is a full a completion of the outline, but it begins in chapter 4. Now, John has finished two parts of God's plan for our salvation. And we, in chapter 1, verse 19, if you, if you missed it, if you want to, under, to kind of understand what we're saying here, verse 19 is the outline of the book of Revelation. Now, Revelation is singular. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what this book is all about. The outline of the book in verse 19, you'll see where John uh, hears Jesus say to him, Write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. The things which John has seen is the glorified Lord. That's in uh, chapters, uh, chapter 1, verses 13 through 17. John has seen him. He's written that. The things which are, chapter 2 and chapter 3. The things which are is the church. John writes letters from Christ to the church. All of those churches relate to the church age. John is going to send this letter back to Ephesus. The interesting thing is, is that everything that John put in here, and this is one thing you need to keep in mind when you uh, read the book of Revelation. When John wrote with symbols and, and different things that we have so much trouble with, one of the reasons that John uses the phrases that he does is because the books that John sent out of Patmos into Ephesus were intercepted by the Romans. The Romans would read it, they wouldn't understand it, thought it was a bunch of nonsense, and they let it go through. John sent the the letter to Ephesus to be read in all seven churches that he listed there. Blessed is those that read and those that hear the word. So now John has written down to the churches the letters that Jesus gave to him. This is These seven churches represent the church of every age. Now we could go back, and I, I mentioned the fact that there are, are dispensational thoughts, and, and you can make a case for that. But I think it's, it's easier for us to just remember that all seven of these churches represent the church age from the time of the apostles to today. We read in chapter 3, the last church, the church of Laodicea, Jesus says, you're not hot, you're not cold, like Hierapolis and Colossae. Hierapolis has the warm baths, and then Laodicea sits here and Colossae sits here. Colossae had the cool water uh, that flowed, and, and Jesus said, you're not hot and you're not cold. You're lukewarm, and I'll spit you out of my mouth. 
Sometimes I think that's where we are today in the church age, that he's ready to spew that out. But what, what he's going to teach us is that he has a plan for us beyond the church age. And that's what we're going to see. John's written to his colleagues. He wrote, he's written to them about rewards that they receive, about retribution that is going to come. Now he comes to the final part of the outline. You notice in, in chapter uh, 1, verse 19 again, write these things which shall be hereafter. Look at chapter 4 and verse 1. After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show you things which must be hereafter. The word hereafter in verse 19 and the first two words of Revelation 4 are the same phrase. In verse 19, he says, write what will come hereafter. In chapter 4, he begins that chapter with this phrase, after this. The word, the phrase is, in, in the Greek, metatauta. And it just refers what's going to come after this. So you have to ask yourself, what is it coming after? And the only answer that you can come up with is, after the church age. After the church. What's going to happen when this church is no more on the earth? I'm not talking about this building or any other building. I'm not talking about a denomination. This Baptist denomination, I talk about them all day long. But I'm not talking about other denominations and Baptist denominations. I'm talking about when Jesus is going to return for his church, which are the born again, baptized believers in Christ. So don't limit it to a denomination. Don't limit it to one particular church because Central Baptist Church cannot get you into heaven. None of the other churches can get you into heaven. You can, you can follow along after someone and they're not going to get you into heaven. The only thing that will get you there is Jesus Christ taught to us in the New Testament that He came, He died, He was buried, He rose again, and He's coming back. So what's after this? John said, after this, after the seven letters of the churches are over. Interestingly, once you leave chapter 3, the word church, you'll never read again in Revelation until you get to Revelation twenty-two sixteen, And Jesus is talking about the churches that this letter is going to. But the church doesn't appear anymore. You get over in, in uh, chapter 19 and you find the marriage supper of the Lamb. We're not the church. We're the bride. You see? See, we get to heaven and you say, well, I don't like this denomination or that denomination. Well, you better get used to it because if you get to heaven, we're all going to be mixed up together. So we just will get along. The church is for a now. The called out ones. 
to take the gospel, to take the word and share it with the lost and dying world. And when he calls us out, we become his bride. And so the church is never mentioned after this letter is sent. Jesus is dictated to the churches, and now he's going to reveal the next part of his plan. The final part of God's plan is what is next for you. What's next for you? What's happening? Now, I still have those little bookmarks, and if you'd like to have one, uh, you can come up here and get one when it's over. But if you have yours, if you brought it with you, you're going to see where we are in this as, as you look. Here we, here we have come along. John sees Jesus. He writes to the seven churches. Now, the next thing that you see, according to this bookmark, right up at the top, the rapture of the church. After this, metatorta, after the church age, we come to the last part of the outline that is going to take us from chapter 4 to chapter 22. And it's going to describe for us the tribulation, the great tribulation, the fall of the empires, the coming of Christ in a millennial reign, a thousand years, the judgment that is going to come on those who refuse Christ, new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem. That's what comes after this. So let's see what John is saying to us and see if we can, can kind of understand this, if you will. Now, before we do, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to help you, but this, this can get a little deeper than we want it to get. So let me tell you something. Number one, if you want to understand Revelation, quit being afraid of Revelation. Just, just accept it for what it is, okay? And number two, don't overthink it. We, we try to overthink this stuff and make it something that it's not. Now, the reason that I'm showing you this is because to understand the rapture, there are theories that try to describe this. Now, you may, you may not can see it very good. I hope you can. But the, the one at the very top there is, is a movement called the Preterist. And, and the Preterist, basically their idea of the book of Revelation is that everything that John wrote there was fulfilled in his time. John saw it all fulfilled. All the events of Revelation, this is the thesis, the first column over. All the events of Revelation were fulfilled during the days of either Nero or Domitian. Domitian is the king that put John on Patmos. The book is prophetic only of that era. So preterist, and, and there's, there's a, a, a group, a denomination in our world today uh, that hold to this because it began uh, with the Jesuits and, and it continues uh, there. And I, I, can't, I can't hold stock with that because of several things Revelation says. The next one is called, we call it historical. Most of us, if you've been in church very long, this is post-millennialism. Post-millennialism means after the millennium. The belief that Christ will return at the end of the millennial age. Okay? Revelation is a panorama of church history from the initiation of the apostolic era to the consummation of the age. So basically what that means is, is that, that 
Christ will not, the church will stay through all of the tribulation. And when it comes to the millennial, Christ will come and then he will come to his church. Well, why would he want to take us out there and then put us back here? So none of that, it, it, really, doesn't, it really doesn't fit. And then there's one called, we call it idealist or it's amillennialism. No, ah, it's a negative. Ah, millennium, no millennial. The belief that there is no millennial reign of Christ on earth. The, the apocalypse is not to be construed as a representation of actual events. Whether past or future, the book is only a symbol or metaphor to depict the great struggle between good and evil. In other words, uh, we're just going to continue on like we are, and, and God is not going to intervene in any way, uh, and we're just going to have to suck it up and get over it. Okay? Then there's one called the futuristic. This is called premillennialism. It is the belief that Christ will return to usher in the millennial age. In other words, he's going to come for that thousand-year reign. Beginning with chapter 4, the events described along to the future age and the, and the constitute a, pre, a marvelous prophecy of God's program for the consummation of the age. Now you say, well, I didn't understand any of that. That's all right. I didn't much understand it either. But here's what it says. You either are going to stay here and suffer through, through the tribulation or God has a plan. And I really believe that if we look at this after this, that you will understand that God has a plan for us. The interesting thing is that the word rapture is not in the scripture. So I want you to look with me in 1 Thessalonians 4, and I want you to follow along with me as we read what Paul says about the coming of Christ and what's going to happen when Christ does come. Now, in chapter 4 of 2 Timothy, and you don't need to look over there, find 1 Thessalonians 4. Paul said, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead as his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. That's what's happening to us now. We're having a lot of fables told to us and not adhering to the truth. So what is this thing called the rapture? Verse 13. Notice, now understand the people at Thessalonica were afraid Knowing Jesus was going to come back, they were afraid that their loved ones who had died, that was it. They'd never see them again. Okay, so Paul is trying to answer that question. And so he said, I would not have you, and in the King James it said, I will not have you to be ignorant, brethren. In other words, I don't want you not understanding this concerning those who have died. Now there's your thesis. This is what he's going to answer in the, in the verses that follow. I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have died, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. All right. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have died in Jesus. For this I say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain under the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who have died. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, 
and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Now that phrase, caught up, it means to snatch away. Okay? Now what Paul says to us is, and notice this, those who are alive and remain, we're not going to leave the dead behind. There are graves out in the cemetery. If the Lord Jesus were to come right now and rapture his church, the cemetery would break open. Those in Christ would be caught up. And we'd all, all over the world, be taken into his presence. And it'll be done in the twinkling of an eye. And that's it. We're gone. Now Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, he describes for us, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the trump of God. And here he says to the people at Thessalonica, understand this, that we're going to be taken out just as surely as the dead is going to rise in him. In verse 1, John said, there's a voice of a trumpet. That's the voice of the archangel. His name is Michael. He will blow the trumpet. The trumpet had great meaning in the Old Testament. It would call the people together. It would call the army to war. It would call them to assembly. And Michael would blow the trumpet, but only those that know Jesus as Savior will hear the call. Because you don't know Christ, you can't hear the music. See what I mean? But if you know Jesus, the, the, the trumpet will sound. The, vo the call will be given. Come forth! And the church will be gone. Now, sounds like something out of a horror movie, doesn't it? But yet when you begin to think about what God is going to do, he's going to snatch us away out of here. Now, the interesting thing is, in the Olivet Discourse of Jesus in Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus said this, Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all things be fulfilled. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. But of that day and hour knoweth not any man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah, so shall also be the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and knew not until the flood came, and took them all away. So shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Just like in the days of Noah. And you say, well, they're, they're going to be marrying and giving in marriage and, and people are, are going to be in revelry and, and nobody's going to have any boundaries and, and all of this. No, that, that's part of that. But folks, when he talks about such as it was in the days of Noah, they paid it no attention. Yeah, they, they watched the boat for maybe the first 12 years, but it was 120 years that he built on that boat and nobody paid attention to him. 
Nobody listened to the words that he said. Nobody paid any attention to what was going on until God shut the door of that boat. And then they begged to get in. When God takes the church away, some will know it, many will not. They will not honor the scripture and say, God has done this. They will make it all go away using the scripture. And that's what we're doing today. That's these fables and things that people are telling, that there's no such thing as a, as a rapture. There's no such thing as, as Jesus coming back again. We're all just going to kind of assimilate back into heaven, and there we're all going to be. Now, Jesus identifies the rapture so that he can show God's love for his church. And here's the practical part of this. Let me ask you a question, and you be practical with me, will you? Why would God allow his church to go through all that we're going to see from chapter 6 to chapter 19? Why would God put his church through all of that when it's going to be dictated all by Satan and the Antichrist? Why would the church be left here? The Antichrist is going to be ruling once this all begins, once the tribulation begins, we're going to be under, the world's going to be under the Antichrist. And Satan is the power of the Antichrist. In other words, he's going to have his heyday. Now, God is bringing uh, unrepentant Israel to him. That's what the tribulation is all about. But it's going to be in, in Israel as well when uh, the Antichrist breaks the treaty. And the great tribulation begins and no one is going to be safe. God is not going to leave his people here because he has something better for us. Let's go back to the Old Testament a minute. Before the flood came, a man by the name of Enoch was walking with God, and God took him, and he was gone. Noah. Noah continued to build the boat. He was faithful to God to the end, and I can sure he begged the people to come in as he stood in the door of the ark, and when God closed the door of the ark, that's it. He took Noah and his family out of the flood. Abraham prayed and said, Would you keep Lot in your care for this many righteous men? Lot fled Sodom and Gomorrah before the destruction came. And when you look back in the Old Testament and you see all of these things happening, Taken out before all of this. You understand what God said. Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus said in John 5, 24, that if you believe in Christ and follow Him and trust Him, there is no condemnation and you pass from death unto life. And He wants to give us that life. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. God has not called us to wrath but that we might be saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. Why would God leave us here? And when you think about those things, it makes sense to know that God is going to withdraw us. And I can't help but put these two things together. You remember when Jesus called out uh, Lazarus from the grave? Can you imagine what's going to happen? All he did was call a name. Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus walked out of a tomb. Let me tell you something, folks. The day is going to come 
when he's going to call for his church and the church is going to walk out of the tomb and the church is going to be lifted up into the presence of God. We're going to be set free from the trouble because God has something better for us. But also the rapture reminds us that there is a judgment that is to come. People don't believe that. People think that after we've accepted Christ that everything is hunky-dory. If you know what hunky-dory means. You know what it means? Listen to what Paul said. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. We shall appear before the judgment seat of Christ, the bema it is called, the judgment seat of Christ. Now, some people think that when people die, that they go and they're judged. The judgment doesn't come until the church is gone. And the reason is that when people die, their influence continues. And they were rewarded for what they established and what they did. And their influence continues. Now, when the, when the, the tribulation is coming and he raptures his church, now it's time for the judgment. We will go before God at the judgment seat of Christ. Time and again, I've, I've told you this. We are going to be judged as children of God. We are going to be judged for our service to God. What are you doing for God? What are you doing to lift up Christ? How are you treating your brothers and sisters? How are you treating your neighbors? What are you doing so that you are representing Christ in what we do? And people know that Christ is alive because of the things that we do and the kindness and the things that we show to them. You see, there's going to be that time when we're going to stand before that, that judgment seat of Christ. And we're going to be judged by the one who knows us the very best. Here's what Paul said. For other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man build upon the foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest. For the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he has built thereon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Who's going to judge us? The Lord Jesus Christ is going to judge us. How do I know that? We stand before the judgment seat. Our works for Christ will be revealed. Will they stand the test of fire? Gold, silver, precious stone. Yes, they will. Wood, hay, stubble. No, they won't. How do we know that Christ is the one that's going to do this? You go back into chapter 1 of Revelation when John sees the risen Christ and he begins to describe him and he says his hair is white as wool and white as snow his eyes as a flame of fire every work that Norman Rushing has ever done for the cause of Christ or not is going to be laid out and he will judge them by fire you see those things that will not stand are going to burn the things that do stand, we will be rewarded for. But the things that don't, then we have nothing to bring to Christ. 
Now, he says, yes, you will be saved, but only by the fire. In other words, he said, you'll get in by the skin of your teeth. Folks, I don't, I don't want to do that. I want, I want something to withstand the fire. Don't you? That's why it's important for us as Christians that we pray, that we read the Bible, that we're faithful to God's church, that we do the things that God wants us to do, that we try to uh, reach out to others and share others and, and take care of others and do those things because he wants to reward us. It's not a carrot on a stick for us. We should want to serve God for that reward because we're going to give it back to him. I want something to give to him, don't you? I'm going to stand, and I'm going to be judged. You're going to stand. And guess what? Mom and Dad's not going to be around. I'm not going to be around. No one else is going to be around. You will stand alone before Almighty God at the judgment seat of Christ, just like I will. What are you going to say to him? I love people who say, by golly, when I get to heaven, I'm going to tell God this, and I'm going to tell God that. You're not going to tell God anything. And then they come up and say, well, I'm going to ask God about this. I'm going to ask God about that. You're not going to ask him anything. Guess what you're going to say the first time you look at him? I'm sorry. I'm guilty. Oh, God. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. We are going to be judged, and God wants us to know that. And we're go- because we're going to be judged, then he's prepared for us. There are five crowns mentioned in the Scripture. The incorruptible crown. That's overcoming the old man living for Christ. That's found in 1 Corinthians 9.25. Then there is the crown of rejoicing. That's leading other people to Christ. And let it seeing them come to the saving knowledge. That's in 1 Thessalonians 2.19. If you endure the trials of life, then you receive the crown of life. That's James 1.12. There's a crown of righteousness, which Paul said will be given to me at that day and not to me only, but them that love his appearing. Second Timothy 4, 8. Then there's the crown of glory. That's for the faithful servant, the shepherd of God. First Peter 5, 4. These crowns await us. But folks, unless we are serving God as we should, we don't have it. The next thing that he shows us here is this. The rapture. Then there's going to be rejoicing around the throne. Look at verse 2. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven. And one sat on the throne. And he that, was, that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardius stone. And there was a rainbow around about the throne, in sight like unto an emerald. Folks, let me tell you, what are we going to be doing? we got work to do when we get to heaven But I want you to understand something. We will worship God. And that's what this is. We're going to come, and John has come before the throne, and he he sees everybody, all that is around the throne, worshiping God. And so shall we be. And I'll show you how I know that in just a minute. Now, the word worship means to to ascribe worth to something. So when, when we say, let's worship together, we're saying to you, how much... Is God worth to you? How much is He worth to you? Is He worth a few minutes of your time on Sunday? Is He, is, is he worth uh, taking time to, to pray to? Is He worth taking time to read His Bible? Worship is every one of us praising God for everything that He's done. To God be the glory. Why? 
Sing the song. To God be the glory. What does it say? Yeah, great things he has done. He has for me, has he for you? Great things. And we worship him because great things he has done. We praise him. We worship him. He saved me. Praise you, God. He saved me. Talking to Jimmy the other day. And I've, I've told you this story before, and I won't get into it. But I, I was saved April 17th, 1966. I was going to be baptized on April 23rd or April 24th. That night, April 24th, Kelly and I were in the choir. I looked down at the end, and there was Kelly, and he looked at me, and he was crying, and Kelly was saved, April 24th, 1966. And I said, Jimmy, it doesn't matter. And she said, I know. Because you see, he saved us. I know it. He knows it. Do you know it? Not, not following in, in doing something uh, that you think is, is part of what you've been taught or whatever. Folks, we've got to know Jesus as our Savior, and it's time we started telling people that. Jesus is the only way. He said that in John 14, 6. You don't come to the Father unless you come through me. And we come to him for our salvation, and he saved us, and he's given us a home. God's on his throne. It don't make any difference what's going on down here. God's on his throne, and God is seeing us through. You'll notice, as you read down through here, in verse 5, Out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. We already understand that word seven is perfect. That means the perfect spirit, the Holy Spirit, is before the throne. Now what you're going to see in chapter 5 is the Lamb of God approaching the throne. So the one on the throne is God, the Holy Spirit is before him, and Jesus is going to come to him, and there's going to be a reason for that, and we'll look at that next week. He is described by the jasper stone. The jasper stone is a clear, pretty, beautiful stone that, that you can see through. He's also described by the sardis stone, red. Could it be that those two things symbolize the purity and the blood, the purity of God that sent us His Son and the blood of Jesus that saves us. And when we see that, we'll recognize Him. The interesting thing is, if you read back in Exodus as God is building His tabernacle, the first stone on the breastplate of the uh, high priest is the Sardis stone. The last stone on the breastplate of the, of the priest is the Jasper stone. He is the first he is the last. Isn't that pretty? And that's what they see. That's what John sees here as he stands before him. He's robed in a light of glory. There's a rainbow around the throne, and it's green. We all recognize green is life. Green is mercy. Green is God's grace. But it's not just an ark that all, that's all we'll ever see. We just see an arc across the sky and we try to find this end of the rainbow and that end of the rainbow and, and see where it is. Folks, it's a perfect circle. We're going to see it as a perfect circle because that's God, never ending, never beginning. He is a perfect circle and there we sit and we see Him. But it reminds us of the covenant of creation. And this creation is, is before the throne of God. God is there to be worshipped by all of those that He has created. 
But I want to point out something about this rainbow. Did you notice John shows us the rainbow before the storm? Not after the storm. Before the storm, there's a rainbow. We're going to go to heaven, folks, before the tribulation begins. You see it? You see it? Now, with God is on his throne, we're going to join in worship. Verse 4. And round about the throne were four and twenty seats. On the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. Now some people will tell you that these are angels. But if you'll notice how he describes them, and then remember this, angels are never numbered. They're myriads of angels. They're never numbered. And they're never crowned. So it couldn't be angels as far as I'm concerned. To me, what this represents, and if you read 1 Chronicles 24, David found 24 elders to represent Israel. And they would come and they would meet with David. And it represented all of Israel. The 24 around the throne is the Old Testament and the New Testament. And they come together to represent all of the redeemed of all time. 24. And 24 elders represent the fact that we're all going to be around the throne and we're going to be worshiping God. Clothed in righteousness as those that come out of the tribulation will be. Crowned with God's rewards. They're worshiping Him because of that reward. Verse 5 says there's lightning and thunder and voices coming out. That's the power, the power of God, the power of Spirit, and the power that God is giving to us. The sea of glass that surrounds the throne. John could have been looking at, at the Aegean Sea. He could have been looking across there. But I think he looks at that expanse and he sees all around those who gather and they gather at the throne that they might worship God in spirit and in truth verses 7 and 8 his his uh, creation is around him and the first beast was like a lion the second like a calf the third had a face of a man and the fourth was like a flying eagle the fourth beast had each of them six wings about him and they were full of eyes within, and they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. Now you may think, boy, that's kind of a scary sight. But basically, it's just representation that God's creation will be before Him. And with, the rep with all of God's creation before Him, you read in Ezekiel, chapter 1 through chapter 10, and you'll read some of the very same things that you read about here. Now, Ezekiel talks about uh, the angels with the four wings. John talks that he sees angels with the six. But you go back to Isaiah 1, or Isaiah 6, and you read about the angels around the throne of God, the seraphim with six wings. So here are the seraphim around the throne of God. Their, eye, their, their uh, bodies are full of eyes, it says. In other words, it's wisdom. 
His holiness. As they cry out, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. He's created the worship. The elders fall at their knees. Now look at verse 10. The four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that lived forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Folks, he alone is worthy of our worship. And we will worship him throughout the ages. It will fill our eternity. And we will be giving praise to God. All throughout eternity. And you know why he's worthy? Because of chapter 5. And that's what we'll do next week. You read this chapter and understand those first two words. After this. After the church. This is what's going to begin. We will be brought before God. We will worship with the elders. We will praise God. The tribulation will begin. I don't want to be in the tribulation, do you? I don't want to have to decide, Jude, do I need to know God or not? This is the day of salvation. If you don't know if you're ready for the rapture, you better come get ready. Because in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, you could be by yourself in the bed, Dad, husband, wife. You could be by yourself. You could be walking along with your children, and they may be gone, and you'll be by yourself. If you've never accepted Christ, you, you feel the Spirit saying right now, I want, I, want, I want to know you. I want you to know me. I want you to know Christ then it's time for you to take a move and let's get ready because folks, I don't care what the world says, Jesus Christ is coming again. Are you ready? Let's pray together. Our heads bowed and our eyes closed. I'm asking you to open your heart in faith. Trust Jesus as your Savior. And here's what you pray. Dear Father, I know I'm a lost sinner. I believe Jesus Christ died for me. I believe he rose again. By faith, Lord Jesus, I ask you to come into my heart. Forgive me of all of my sin. Save me, Lord. Be the Lord and Savior of my life. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for saving my soul. Pray that prayer. Dad, mom, husband, wife, young person, you get up and come. Let's talk about what you just did. If you want to pray that prayer, I'll come, come up here. I'll pray it with you. Maybe you need a church where you can join and you can say, I'm going to serve the Lord here because I, I want to be able to lay a crown at his feet. I got to get back to serving him. Then come by letter, by statement for baptism. Come be a part of us. Come be a part of this fellowship as God directs you. Whatever God's placed on your heart. Just know this, he has a plan, and it's in steady motion right now. Are you ready? Father, speak to our hearts. Give us the boldness to step out. We love you, we trust you, we thank you for what you're going to do in Jesus' name. As we stand together and as we sing, I invite you to come. Right now, you come.